Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. We begin our study in the book of Luke today, and I'm going to give kind of an overview uh, of the book before we get into these four verses, just to kind of set the backdrop. And so before we talk about the book of Luke specifically, I want us to talk about the four Gospels. Have you ever wondered why are there four Gospels? If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know it starts off with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And they all talk about miracles that he did and things that he taught. And then also his, obviously at the end, his death, his resurrection. And so why do we have four different accounts by four different people of the same story? And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. The first is to confirm the truth. So Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are told by four different people because it's the most important story in Scripture. It's the story that separates Jews from Christians. I mean, we believe a lot of what Jews believe. Jews just don't accept Jesus. And so it is the most foundational and important part of the New Testament. So having multiple sources giving the same details of the most important aspects of Christ's life and ministry confirm that it wasn't just made up by one person. A second reason for having four Gospels is to elaborate. So each one of the Gospels, if you've ever read through them, you'll notice they cover different things. Some of them are similar, but a lot of them cover different stories than others. And so having these four accounts helps us to understand more clearly and fully the life of Jesus. The four Gospel writers wrote their accounts with different audiences in mind. So Matthew writes specifically to the Jews, and as we'll see today, Luke writes to a man named Theophilus. And so having a different audience changes your message slightly in the way that you present it. So Matthew, you'll notice if you read through Matthew, a lot of Old Testament quotations and a lot of uh, just Jewish-related things because Matthew wrote to a primarily Jewish audience. And so as we go through the book of Luke, uh, we'll see that Luke as a doctor, he seems to emphasize the humanity of Christ, whereas John, for instance, emphasizes his deity. Neither of these is wrong because Jesus is, as we've talked about many times, he's fully man and he's fully God. It's just a different emphasis. And so if you wonder why there's four Gospels, I think a lot of it is to confirm the truth that it was all of these people are saying the same things about Jesus. And then number two is to elaborate and to give us a more full-orbed view of Jesus Christ. Now, of the Gospels, Luke is the longest. It's by far the longest. In fact, it makes up about a third of the New Testament. Luke is the only Gospel uh, that has a sequel, and that is the book of Acts. Maybe you've not realized this. The book of Acts is actually a sequel to Luke. And uh, we'll see this in just a few minutes, but this two-volume work, Luke and Acts, covers the life of John the Baptist and then Jesus, his death and resurrection, his ascension, and then Acts covers the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, Peter's ministry, the activities of the early church, Paul's ministry and missionary journeys, Paul's arrest and imprisonment in Rome. It covers kind of the whole span of the first like 60 years from Jesus' birth or John the Baptist's birth, really, until the end of Paul's life. And so these two books, Luke and Acts, basically give us the history of Christ and of the early church. And as I mentioned earlier, Luke, Luke is the largest gospel account. You'll notice as we work through this book, uh, the chapters are very long. In fact, the author of Luke and Acts wrote more of the New Testament than any other author, and that includes Paul. Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. Now, let's talk about the author of the book of Luke before we get into this. Uh, the author is actually not stated in the book of Luke or Acts. And so it's generally accepted to be Luke. And we'll see this. There's several things that seem to confirm this. 
We'll see in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Luke says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. Now, if you compare that with the introduction to, in Acts chapter 1, you'll see that Theophilus again is mentioned as the recipient of that letter as well. So Acts 1, verse 1 says, The former treatise, that's talking about the book of Luke, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So here in the first chapter of Acts, the author picks up right where he left off with the book of Luke. And so we know that, that Luke is the prequel to Acts. Whoever wrote Acts also wrote Luke. Okay, And so establishing the author, it's helpful to understand that, that the same person wrote both of these letters. Now, we know that whoever wrote Acts was a traveling companion of Paul. And we'll see this in Acts chapter 16. This is an interesting little thing in Scripture that maybe you've not noticed before. Acts chapter 16, verse number 7. The author changes the pronouns in the middle of this story. And so you see that he joins with the people. You'll see this in in verse number 10. So starting verse 7, it says, After they, talking about Paul and his companions, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Messenia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia. You see the pronoun switch. It was saying they, they, they. Now it says we. Assuredly gathering, the end of verse 10, that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, I have no idea how to say that, and the next day to Neapolis. So you see the change of the pronoun there. So what that indicates to us is that the author of the book of Acts, apparently, while Paul was in Troas, the author joined him and continued traveling with him. You see this throughout the book of Acts as you go through the rest of it. You'll see we, 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 we did this, we did that. So whoever wrote Acts and whoever wrote Luke, consequently, was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Now, that narrows it down quite a bit, but there are still several traveling companions of Paul. We have uh, Timothy, Demas, Luke, Epaphroditus, uh, Silas, Barnabas, Mark, Titus, a lot of different people that are mentioned in Scripture as having traveled with Paul. We can eliminate some of these because the author of Luke and Acts mentions them by name. So, for instance, he'll say, Paul and Silas did this. Well, obviously, if it was him, it would be Paul and I. So, we can eliminate a little bit of that, but the biggest clue that we have is in Acts chapter 28, verse 16, where it says, And we came to Rome, uh, when, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoner to the captive of the guard, but Paul was suffered or allowed to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. So you see the personal pronoun we there. So we, the author, was with Paul in Rome. And we know according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes and says, only Luke is with me. He's writing from Rome. So that's our biggest clue right there, is that the author was with Paul in Rome, and Paul writes in 2 Timothy that only Luke is with me while he's in prison in Rome. So we believe that Luke must have written Acts, and if Luke wrote Acts, then he also wrote the book of Luke. Uh, now, what do we know about Luke? Well, there's, there's a few things. First of all, we know that he probably was a Gentile, and that he was highly educated in Greek. So if this is true, this would actually be the only Gentile to write any portion of the New Testament, as far as we know. And the reason we think this is Colossians 4, starting verse 10, uh, Paul gives a list of people that traveled with him. He says, Aristocrus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth thee, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. 
and Jesus, which is called justice, who are of the circumcision. Notice that phrase, who are of the circumcision. That means Jews. Okay, These only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. Luke, verse 14, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So in verse 11, Paul says, he mentions a list of people that are Jews, and he says these are of the circumcision, or they're Jews. And then at the end here, he mentions a few other people, Luke and Demas, uh, that seem to be Gentiles because they're separated off from the others. So in addition to being a Gentile, we believe Luke was a Greek. That's because, number one, his name is a Greek name. Luke is a Greek name. And also, Luke seems to have been very educated uh, in the Greek language. He has a very broad vocabulary. If you read Greek, you'll notice Luke just uses all sorts of words that the other authors don't. He seems to have been very well educated in the Greek language. Another indication uh, of his Greek influence is that Luke uses the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, throughout his gospel. He's, he quotes from the Greek a lot. So it's actually possible he may have not even known Hebrew. As a side note, and this is just conjecture that I've heard, there's really not enough to substantiate this, but Luke perhaps may have been the brother of Titus. And that's based on uh, Paul mentions Titus as being a Greek, and then he says some phraseology that can be taken to imply that Luke was his brother, but there's definitely not uh, enough evidence to solidify that as a fact. Another fact about Luke is that he was a doctor. Most of you, if I were to ask you, what do you know about Luke? You'd probably say, well, he's a doctor. That's kind of the common thing that everybody knows. And he was. We see in Colossians 4.14, Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. And in the book of Luke, you'll find several medical terms are actually used throughout the book. Even in these first verses we just read, you see the word there for eyewitness. It comes from the Greek word autopsy, which translates into autopsy in medical terminology. So he uses a lot of medical terms through there that seem to indicate, again, that Luke was the author. Now, having understood that Luke is a Gentile, most likely a physician, or he was a physician, most likely a Greek, let's look at Luke's character a little bit. I want to draw some application points from this because I think we can learn a lot about how we ought to be as Christians by looking at the example of Luke. Now, Luke is only mentioned three times in the, in the entire Bible by name. But I think each one of these shows us a little bit about what he was. So we see first in Philemon, verse 23, uh, there salute thee, this is Paul speaking, there salute thee Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, and Lucas, my fellow laborers. Lucas is just a different way of spelling Luke. So Luke was a fellow laborer with Paul. He traveled around with Paul, and uh, he did work of ministry with Paul. Paul would start a church, and Luke would be there with him, helping him, and helping reach people and helping to uh, just helping Paul in whatever way he could. He was a fellow laborer. That's what Paul calls him here. And I think a lot of times we miss the fact that Paul kind of gets all the praise from us, right? We think about Paul as this great guy who did all these wonderful things. And we miss all those people that helped him. There were a lot of people that traveled with Paul that went through the same afflictions uh, that Paul went through. We see in Acts chapter 27, uh, verse 18, and we, this is again the author speaking, we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lighted the ship. So they're in the middle of a shipwreck right here in, in Acts 27. The third day, verse 19, we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. So you notice all those we's in there. Luke was with Paul during this storm. Later on in the chapter, they eventually shipwreck. In verse 41, it says they, they fell into a place where two seas met and they ran the ship aground, and their forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable. But the hinder part, uh, the back part of the ship, was broken 
with the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they all escaped safe to land. So what I want you to see here is that when Paul is enduring his trials, his fellow companions are as well. Again, you see all those we's. Luke was there too. We know about all these riots that happened in Paul's life, where Jews especially would stir up strife against Paul and they'd beat him. Paul endured shipwrecks and imprisonments, but so did the fellow workers who were with Paul. So in a sense, Luke is one of those unsung heroes of the New Testament. We don't give him a whole lot of attention because he's not mentioned by name much. But he went through a lot of those things that Paul did. When Paul was shipwrecked, so was Luke. Luke was right there with him, swimming to shore. When Paul was in prison in Rome, Luke was there too. We'll see that in a few minutes. So number one, Luke was Paul's co-laborer. The next mention of Luke is in uh, Colossians 4, 14, where Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician and Demas greets you. And we've seen already that uh, Luke is a physician, but you notice here that Paul calls him beloved. It's no wonder that he calls him that. I mean, this is a guy who, who went through a lot of stuff with him, went through a lot of trials. And if you've ever been through trials with someone, you know it brings you closer to them. It builds friendships stronger. And Paul calls Luke the beloved physician because Luke was a helper to him. He was a ministry partner with Paul, but he was also a dear friend of Paul's. And no doubt, Luke was a source of great encouragement to the Apostle Paul. The final mention of Luke is probably the most insightful. It comes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul writes to Timothy and says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. If you read the book of 2 Timothy in its entirety, especially that last chapter, you'll find that Paul is at a low point in his life. Uh, he's sitting in prison in Rome, and he's about to die. Within probably a couple of years, Paul's going to be taken out, and they're going to cut his head off. And it's simply because of the crime of preaching the gospel. And while Paul is sitting in this prison, going through this affliction to add insult to injury, his closest companions are leaving him. They're all deserting him for various reasons. We see Demas forsakes him. He uses the word forsaken in verse 10 because Demas loved the world. He loved the world so much that he forsook Paul during this time of sadness in the life of Paul. And at this time in Paul's life, when he needs encouragement and he needs a friend the most, he's being forsaken. Paul mentions that Christians and Titus has all, had also left him. We don't know why they left, but for whatever reason they left. And you can kind of see in these words, Paul misses the team of people that used to be around him. And while others are deserting him, you see his life is near an end. If you'll go back to verse 6, uh, it says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul knows he's about to die. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So Paul knows that his life is going to be over soon. He's being abandoned by people that were supposed to be his friends. He's sitting in prison because he's faithfully preached the gospel. He's been hurt by many and deserted. And in this context, he says these five words, only Luke is with me. When Paul desperately needed a friend, Luke was there. When everybody else had deserted Paul, Luke remained faithful to him. Luke was a loyal friend. And so having looked at the author of the book of Luke, we'll move on now to the recipient of the letter. We see him in, in the opening verse that you may have read it, where it mentions Theophilus. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus. 
Now, we don't know much about Theophilus. In fact, these are the only two mentions of him, the, the first couple of verses of Luke and then the first couple of verses of Acts that I showed you earlier. So Theophilus, we really don't know much about him, but uh, it seems to be that he also was a Greek. Theophilus, again, is a Greek name, and it comes from two Greek words you may have heard of. Theos means God, and phileo means love or friend if it's phylos. So his name actually means friend of God. And Theophilus seems like he was not living in Israel. He seems to have been a foreigner from somewhere outside of the country of Israel because of some of the specificity that Luke gives when he mentions areas within the country of Israel. So look at uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 31. It says, and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. So he mentions Capernaum and then he explains that's a city in Galilee. Uh, Luke eight twenty six. there's another similar thing. He says, they arrived at the country of the Gadarians, which is over against Galilee. Then one more, Luke twenty four thirteen. Behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. So you see him giving details that seem to imply that the recipient of the letter was not familiar with Israel. He, he probably didn't live in Israel. We can also deduce that Theophilus may have been a government official. And you may have noticed in Luke 1, 3, it says, most excellent Theophilus. This is sort of like saying your excellency. That might be how we'd say it today. So we believe he may have been a government official. And this phrase is found a couple of times in the book of Acts. The same author here, Acts 23, verse 26 says, Claudius Lysias unto the most excellent governor Felix sendeth greeting. Almost the exact same phrasing there. And then also Acts 24, 3, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix. And Felix was, again, a governor in, in Jerusalem. Acts twenty six twenty five is, an, again, a mention of Festus, who's also a governor, and says most noble Festus. All very similar phrases in Greek. Uh, so we believe Theophilus, the receiver of this letter, probably was some sort of government official, perhaps a Roman official who was given this honorary title of most excellent Theophilus. So we've looked at the author and the recipient of these two books, Luke and Acts. And now we'll just do a quick overview of the book, and then we'll jump into these first few verses. So I, I gave a few key themes of the book of Luke, and the first one is repentance. You're going to find repentance mentioned over and over throughout the book. Jesus is calling people to repent, to turn from sin, and to become a follower of him. Another thing that's mentioned quite frequently is the cost of discipleship. Jesus emphasizes throughout the book of Luke that sacrifice is required to be his disciple. There's a lot of strange passages if you read them. Someone comes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you, and he almost discourages them. He'll say things like, well, you know what's going to cost you because you'll have to forsake this, this, and this. So the, the cost of discipleship is another theme. Jesus emphasizes that being a follower of his won't be easy and that one needs to consider the cost if they're truly all in. Another key theme in the book of Luke is prayer. And specifically, Jesus' prayer life, and this is found over and over throughout the book, where it mentions that Jesus prayed, and he prayed a lot. We'll see places where he prayed all night. And it, it's convicting to me to think that if the Son of God prays and felt like it was that important for him to pray, how much more important is it for us? Obviously, we're not God. We don't have, uh, we're, we're not sinless. We need wisdom far more than he needed it. And yet, we often forsake prayer. And so Jesus' prayer life is, is mentioned quite a bit where it talks about Jesus withdrawing from crowds and going up on a mountain alone and praying. Another key theme is the kingdom of God, and this is mentioned many times throughout the book of Luke. It's a main theme for sure. And the kingdom of God is spoken of as being present during the time of Jesus, but it's also sometimes spoken of as kind of a future reality. And so it seems to have present elements that will reach its consummation in the future. And we'll talk more about that as we get into the book of Luke. Another key theme is the glory of God. We'll see this throughout the book of Luke as well. Jesus does miracles. Jesus teaches. 
And over and over the statement is said, and he brought glory to God, or the people glorified God. And it's a beautiful picture of how Jesus brought glory to his Father. Another key theme, and this is kind of a random one, demons. A lot of demon activity in the book of Luke. You'll see a lot of people possessed of demons and doing all sorts of crazy stuff, and we'll have fun when we get to those. Another key theme is judgment. Often throughout the book of Luke, Christ warns of a coming judgment. And this may be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is going to happen just a few years after Jesus dies and ascends into heaven. The destruction of Jerusalem may be some of those. But then also he talks about a judgment that's coming at the end of time when he returns. Another theme is Jesus versus the religious leaders. And you'll see this a lot where he interacts with Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. And they don't always get along very well. Jesus will say things that will aggravate them. He'll heal people on the Sabbath and just frustrate them. And we'll get into some of those as we go through this as well. Jesus, three times in the book of Luke, he eats with Pharisees, has a meal with them. And then the final theme, and this is, might be the, the biggest one of the book, is compassion. The overall theme of Luke is that Jesus has compassion on all types of people. He's accepting of the outcasts of society. We see in, in the book of Luke, he, he loves and accepts Gentiles, women who were really diminished in that society. The poor, sinners, all who would come to him would accept and would love. And this is the main theme of Luke's gospel. Jesus has compassion on all. I think the key verse of Luke seems to be Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And that goes along with that theme of compassion that Jesus uh, had come with compassion on even the outcasts of society to bring them to himself. So with that as the background, we'll dive into the introduction of Luke. We see in verse 1, It says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed." Have you, ever, have you ever wondered how we can be sure that we have the words of God? How do we know the Bible isn't filled with errors? How can we be certain that what we read and what we teach from is accurate? These are a lot of the questions that Luke answers in these four verses. And as has been mentioned earlier, he's very well versed in Greek and he follows a format that many Greek historians used when they would give a historical account. They would give an introduction to it. And that's what Luke's doing here. He begins with this prologue that states the purpose for his work. So Luke states that he has carefully researched from reliable sources the events of the entire life of Christ. He is writing to Theophilus a detailed and orderly account so that Theophilus can have total certainty that all he's been taught is factually accurate. That's kind of the summary statement of this passage. So first we see that he says many others had already written the same story of Jesus. See that in verse 1. Where he says, many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. That's a long way of saying a lot of other people had written similar works. You may not know this, but the Gospels that we have in our Bible are not the only ones that were written. And we don't have those still. They haven't been preserved for us. But Luke says many other people had written stories about the life of Christ. And this isn't surprising, I don't think, because if you think about the impact Jesus had, I mean, why wouldn't people write books about that? I and mean, people are still writing books about the life of Christ. Imagine being somebody who watched it, who was a disciple or a follower of Christ, who saw these miracles happen. And so Luke says many had already written similar works. In Luke chapter 24, two disciples come across uh, somebody who says that they haven't heard of Jesus. And they say in verse 18, one of them, whose name was Cleophas, answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass in these days? 
He said, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. So we see that the fame of Jesus had spread throughout all that area to where these guys are shocked when somebody says, I haven't heard of Jesus. A Matthew 4, a similar thing. It says, speaking of Jesus, his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments and those which were possessed with devils and those who were lunatic and those that had palsy and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. So you see the impact that Jesus had. He had a huge impact on thousands of people from different regions of the world. Everybody back in those days, basically, if you lived anywhere around Israel, you knew about Jesus. And Jesus did far more than just what's recorded in these four gospel accounts. John 21 ends his gospel by saying, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So because of all that Jesus did on this earth and the huge impact he had, it shouldn't be surprising to us that many people had written about this great story, the greatest story that's ever been told, the life of Jesus. Also, Luke mentions in verse number two that others who were eyewitnesses had spread the story verbally. So Luke mentions in verse two that in addition to some having written about the life of Christ, there were other people who spoke of these events that were eyewitnesses. So Luke doesn't say that the eyewitnesses wrote accounts. Okay, He says that they seem to spread it orally. The word delivered there basically means transmitted. So there were people who had been with Jesus from the very beginning that were now spreading their story about the life of Christ and what they had seen to other people. You see in verse 2 that Luke says these were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And basically what that means, I'm not going to get into the whole Greek construction there, but basically what it means is that they were telling a message that they had observed with their own eyes. Okay, They had seen these things take place that they were spreading. Now, who are these eyewitnesses? That's a good question to ask, right? I mean, the first question, of course, is who, what are these accounts that's been written? Well, unfortunately, we don't have those. We assume that many people have written accounts of the life of Christ that just weren't preserved for us to this day. But who are these eyewitnesses that Luke mentions here that are spreading the message of Christ? The first answer is the disciples of Christ. Of course, those 12 disciples, those are the most famous ones that we know about. But also there's people like the 72 that Jesus sends out in the book of Luke to preach the kingdom of God to other places. And Jesus had many other followers that followed him. And we assume that they also were spreading this message. Whoever Luke is referring to as the eyewitnesses, that spread the events of the life of Christ, we know that they were chosen by God to do this. And we know this because of Acts chapter 10. This is a very interesting passage. Acts 10 verse 37 says, That word I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea. So this is talking about the message of Christ. And began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Here's the message. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, notice this, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. So Jesus, God had chosen certain key witnesses that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection so that they could spread the message throughout the land. Verse 42, it says, He commanded us, Jesus commanded us, to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. So God chose certain people to be witnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. 
And then Jesus, after his resurrection, commanded them to go out and preach this message everywhere they went. So they were chosen by God. They were commissioned by Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, we see some of these disciples, they were spreading this message and the government didn't like it. They came to them and they were going to imprison them. Acts 4 verse 18 says, They called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. These eyewitnesses felt a compulsion to tell the story of Jesus and to spread it everywhere they went. So they'd been chosen by God. They'd been commanded by Jesus to spread this message. And then we also see in John chapter 15 that they were aided and directed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. John 15, 26 says, When the Comforter, talking about the Holy Spirit, is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Jesus also said in John 14, The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So these eyewitnesses were chosen by the Father. They were commanded by Christ to spread their message, and then they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were guided by the Spirit. Certainly, these are reliable sources of information. These are better than just eyewitnesses' accounts because they've been commissioned by the triune God to spread this message. So in essence, as we read these first couple of verses, Luke really isn't the author of Luke. He's more like the compiler. Okay? He's taking these accounts and these stories that he's heard from eyewitnesses, and he's compiling them together in a book that we call the Gospel of Luke. Luke wanted Theophilus to understand that this was reliable information that he had received from eyewitnesses. Uh, we see in verse 3 that Luke moves on to tell Theophilus the reason for his writing. Luke's desire to write to Theophilus grew out of his sense of preparedness. He felt like he understood perfectly these events, and he was just the ideal person to write about Jesus' life. It seemed good or fitting to him, he says in verse 3, because of this knowledge. He tells us that he acquired this knowledge by careful research. Luke had diligently sought out every detail of the story of Christ from multiple sources. And he had a complete knowledge. He had no doubt, in other words, about any detail of his account being accurate. So who were Luke's sources? Who were these eyewitnesses? Who might Luke have gotten information from? And I did a little bit of research just out of my own curiosity. And the first likely source is Mark. So we know Mark writes a gospel, right? The gospel of Mark. And Mark was actually written several years, most likely, prior to the book of Luke. So when Luke says in verse 1 that many others had written and he'd read those accounts, one of those was likely the book of Mark. Mark was also a traveling companion of Luke. He likely had gotten some information from him about the life of Christ. We see in Philemon chapter 23, there salute the Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. So there you see Mark and Luke are together with Paul. Also, 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me, Paul says, take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. So being that Mark and Luke spent considerable time together, it's likely that he got some information from him. Another source of information likely was Philip the Evangelist. You remember Philip was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And we know in Acts chapter 21 that Luke spent some time with Philip. We see here in Acts 21 verse 8, it says, The next day we that were of Paul's company, so Luke is with Paul here, departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven and abode with him. It's talking about the deacons in Acts 6. Verse 9 says, The same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. 
Verse 10, And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. So Luke and Philip, according to this passage, spent many days together. And Philip, again, was a disciple of Christ. So likely Luke interviewed Philip and, and got some information from him about the life of Christ. So Luke says that he diligently sought out every detail of his account. Another likely source of Luke's information was the mother of Jesus, Mary. And the reason we believe her to be a source is there's many details in the Gospel of Luke that only Mary would have known. If you think about in Luke chapter 1, Mary is visited by Gabriel and then Mary goes to see Elizabeth. In Luke 2, there's the famous story of the birth of Christ and visiting of the shepherds and things like that. In Luke 2, there's also a story about Jesus when he's 12 years old being left in Jerusalem. All of this information would be stuff that Mary would know. And we also see in Luke chapter 2, verse 19 says, after giving an account of some things that had happened, it says, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. A similar statement is found at the end of the chapter where it says in, in Luke 2.51, but his mother, talking about Mary, kept all these sayings in her heart. Well, how would Luke know that if he hadn't talked to Mary? So it seems like Mary was another source that Luke may have had. There's one last source that we need to mention, and that is the Apostle Paul. Now that may sound strange to some of you if you think, well, Paul wasn't there during the life of Christ. How could he be a source of information? But in Acts chapter 26, verse 16, Jesus says to Paul, Rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee. So Paul wasn't just appointed as a witness of what he saw in his life, but Jesus also gave him additional information of other things. Now you see in this, these first few verses that Luke mentions, he has a perfect understanding of all things from the very first. In other words, Luke is saying he had carefully investigated each event of the life of Christ from the very beginning. Luke's gospel is the most comprehensive of the four gospels. It starts far earlier than the others, actually about a year and a half before his birth, because it starts with the announcement of John the Baptist. And then, you know, nine months later, John's born, and then six months later, Jesus is born. So Luke actually starts considerably before Jesus is even born. From the beginning of Christ's life to the end, Luke had carefully investigated every detail. He had compared written accounts, as he says, with eyewitnesses that he talked to. And Luke has a high regard for certainty. He refused to write anything that he wasn't totally convinced was accurate. The end of verse 3 says that Luke had written in order. You see, he writes to Theophilus, and he says he's written this in order, which basically means in consecutive order. And the word here used, we see it in Acts 11 as well, where, where Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them. So this is a similar phrase in Greek that seems to indicate a consecutive order. And that's one of the reasons I like the book of Luke, because it is, it's in chronological order, which is easiest for my brain to understand, that this happened and then this happened and then this happened. So the goal of Luke's writing is certainty. Why did Luke write this orderly account to Theophilus? Why did he trace down these eyewitnesses and read accounts of Christ's life? Why did he investigate and confirm every detail of the life of Jesus from beginning to end? The answer is verse 4. That thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. It seems that Theophilus was likely a new convert to Christianity. We know from this verse he had already been taught something of the life of Christ. That seems to be indicated. And Luke wants to write to him to confirm that what he'd been taught is backed up by reliable sources, that it's true. The goal of Luke's writing is certainty. I think it's a key word in the entire prologue. Luke analyzed the written accounts of Christ's life and compared them with the eyewitness accounts. He traced down every detail of Jesus' life so that he could be certain that it was all true. And according to verse 3, because he was so certain, it seemed good to Luke to write out everything he learned so that Theophilus could have the same certainty. 
Notice the plurality of eyewitnesses in verse 2. He doesn't just say, I talked to one eyewitness. I talked to several, okay, numerous people that had heard the same event from numerous eyewitnesses. These all confirmed in the listener's mind that what they said was indeed true. Now, Luke goes on to say that it, it seemed fitting for him to write a consecutively ordered narrative because he had diligently traced out from the beginning every detail of the life of Christ, and he had full knowledge of these things. And then at the end, in verse 4, he gives the reason for this. So that Theophilus might know with total certainty that what he'd been taught and what he had read and what had been passed down to him was true. Luke was here to settle the story once and for all and to confirm every detail of the life of Jesus, that these things weren't just made up. This is factually accurate stuff that people saw with their own eyes. Hebrews 2, we see uh, an interesting passage that helps us to confirm that we can trust our Bible. And that's really the point of, of this prologue. We can trust the information that we have in the Bible. Hebrews 2 verse 1 says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. So the author of Hebrews gives us even more confirmation that we can trust the word of God. He says that God confirmed that these things were true by miracles, by signs, and by wonders that the apostles did. So these people who were saying, hey, I'm an eyewitness I saw Jesus uh, die on the cross, and I saw him rise again from the dead, and I saw these miracles. Well, how would you know to believe them? If God confirms them by some miracle or by some sign that they do, that gives you assurance that what they're telling you is true. Another passage of Scripture that, that I want us just to consider quickly is 2 Peter chapter 1, where it says, We have not followed cunningly devised fables. It's talking about the Word of God. It's not a cunningly devised fable, which when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard. We were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I am so thankful that God gave us a Bible. It's something that we can trust. It's reliable. You know, the, the oral tradition only goes so far because you got to trust that whoever told the person who's telling you got all the details right. But when you have it in writing, that just gives us confidence that what we have is true. And Peter assures us that none of the Bible was just some human man that just wanted to write something. No, these men were guided by the Holy Spirit when they spoke. So that brings us to an important question. And maybe it's a question that you've asked yourself as we've read the prologue to Luke's gospel. Is Luke inspired because Luke says, I've done some research, I've talked to eyewitnesses, and I've read some accounts, and I've compiled things for you, Theophilus. Here's an account of the life of Christ. Does that mean Luke wasn't inspired? And that's a good question. And if you're wondering that, you're certainly not alone. There's Christians that have been struggling for centuries about this prologue and how it doesn't seem to fit with some views of inspiration. We see in verse 3 that he says, it seemed good to me to write to you. And actually some 
some early Latin manuscripts insert a phrase, and the Holy Spirit there. So it says, it seemed good to me and the Holy Spirit to write unto thee. Now that's not originally a part of Luke's gospel. That was something somebody slipped in there to try to clean that up. But I, I disagree certainly with tampering with the Bible like that. But I think whoever inserted that phrase actually had the right understanding of this. I want us to look at Acts chapter 15 to kind of draw a conclusion about the inspiration of the book of Luke. We see this is the story of the Jerusalem council where the disciples were gathered to discuss what to do with Gentiles who were being saved. So Christianity starts off as a Jewish religion, and then some Gentiles start getting saved, and they don't know, you know, should we make them be Jews, or is this open to everybody? And so they meet in Acts chapter 15 to talk about this. And in verse 19, this is James speaking, he says, Wherefore, my sentence is, or my opinion is, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. Now, if you look down at verse 28, they write a letter, and in that letter they say this, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. Now, hang on. Verse 19 says, this is James' opinion. And then in verse 29, it says, verse 28, it says that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So was this James' idea or was this the Holy Spirit? It's like, who came up with this? And the only answer we can give from this text is yes, it's both. James had this idea and it seemed that the church decided that this was the Holy Spirit's leading. And so when we consider the book of Luke, I believe it is inspired, but that doesn't mean he was in a trance and God was like whispering in his ear and telling him what to write down each word for word. No, Luke did research. Luke did evidence. He looked at the evidence. He talked to eyewitnesses. And he compiled this narrative based upon the facts. But we believe that the Holy Spirit led Luke to do this. The Holy Spirit led Luke to people like Philip and Mary and Mark and whoever else Luke may have gotten information from. The Holy Spirit was the one who implanted, I believe, in Luke's mind the idea that it would be a good thing to write the account to Theophilus. So yes, Luke is inspired scripture. And we can come at this conclusion another way by looking at 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And then in 1 Timothy 5, Paul quotes from the book of Luke, and he calls it scripture. We see in 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, and that's talking about money, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Verse 18, notice this, For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 25. But he finishes the verse by saying, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. So the scripture says these two things. And that last quote there comes from Luke chapter 10, verse 7, where Jesus says, the laborer is worthy of his hire. So Paul quotes from the book of Luke and he calls it scripture. Now there's a few things kind of in conclusion that I want us to tie together in terms of application before we leave this morning. Luke, if you've ever read through the book of Luke, you know it's a long book, right? The chapters are long. It takes a long time to read. I think there's 27 chapters, maybe 24. But I want you to just consider this, that Luke wrote this book for his friend Theophilus. You know, it takes us a long time to read it. Imagine how long it took him to write it. And he did it all for one guy. I don't think Luke knew that we'd be reading it 2,000 years later. Luke did all of this work for Theophilus to give him confidence and certainty about these important matters. Luke was a truly great friend. Theophilus didn't seem to ask for Luke to write this. And honestly, it doesn't seem like God even told Luke to write it. He says in verse 3, it just seemed good to me to write to you. 
This was his idea. He thought of it. And he did this for his friend Theophilus. It's no wonder that Paul refers to Luke as beloved. It's not surprising to me that when everybody else forsook Paul, Luke remained faithful to him. He was a dedicated, loyal, and caring friend, both to Paul and also to Theophilus. And so there's three main applications I just want to draw from this. Uh, number one, are you a true friend like Luke? You know, how far would you be willing to go for your friends? Imagine somebody like Luke who went to prison for Paul. He didn't have to. He could have deserted him just like everybody else, but he didn't. He stuck with him, even when it was hard. Number two, do you have certainty and confidence in the Bible? With all that Luke did and the other authors did, to make sure we have a reliable Bible, we ought to be so thankful and we ought to have confidence that the Word of God is true and that every detail of it's true. Imagine even throughout history the thousands of scribes that would hand copy you know, before the printing press the Bible to get it to us today. We ought to be so thankful that people were so diligent to give us an accurate copy of the Word of God. And then number three, my final application, this is most convicting to me, is just who am I discipling? We think of Luke. Luke, in essence, was discipling Theophilus. He was writing these long letters to Theophilus and teaching him everything that he knew about Jesus Christ. And we need people like Luke today who will study and investigate every detail of the Word of God and, and then teach others what they've learned. That's obviously what I try to do as I preach, but that's not just my responsibility. That's every one of our jobs. We ought to be studying the Bible, not only so that we can grow from it and profit from it, but so that we can also teach other people. We ought to be discipling one another. And this is, again, this is convicting to me. I've been okay at discipling sometimes, and then at other times I get away from it, and I, I don't take the time uh, that I need to to have one-on-one -on -one time with people to teach them the Word of God. And then also, I'd say this as well, too many of us teach without doing the work of careful and diligent study like Luke did. Luke didn't just write down some stuff the first time he heard it. He researched it out and made sure that what he was saying was true. And so as we seek to disciple others, we want to make sure that we're studying and being diligent and careful in what we teach them so that they can have certainty. And that's, that's the whole goal of this, is that we can uh, provide people not only with the message of Christ, but we can provide it with them in a well-thought-through way so that they can have confidence that it's true. Luke 1, 1, we'll read the text one more time. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.